You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Hi everybody, welcome to the last session of the day. Well done, we made it this far. Um, so just to give you a kind of a breakdown of what we're going to do here today, this is a bit different to the other sessions that we've had um, uh, over the course of the day. Um, this is going to be more of a conversational style with a couple of slides thrown in. Um, for uh, entertainment. Um, so we're going to start by um, discussing our researchers' work specifically so you can get to know them a bit better. Um, and then we have a few more questions and a bit of a conversation. And I will, after we've um, gone through the questions that we have here, I will then throw the um, floor open to you to ask questions. And that includes you guys on Zoom as well. Okay, so uh, we're going to start with Rachel, as Rachel is currently joining us uh, via Zoom. Um, so we'll start with Rachel and then move on to Elisa and uh, then um, Gillian. So Dr. Rachel Hoare is a lecturer in the School of Languages, Literatures and Cultures in Trinity College, Dublin. A faculty member in the Children's Therapy Centre Mullingar in Ireland and the Academic Director of the Trinity, Inclu Trinity College Inclusive Curriculum Programme. She originally specialised in sociolinguistics, which is my field as well, so hooray, um, language and identity and second language acquisition, and later obtained a degree in psychology and a clinical master's in psychotherapy. She's been working on behalf of TUSLA, the Irish Child and Family Agency, as, part of a, as a part-time expressive arts child and adolescent psychotherapist, with unaccompanied asylum-seeking adolescents. She has recently set up and is the director of the Centre for Forced Migration Studies in Trinity College, Dublin, and runs several activities which welcome refugees and those, who, those seeking international protection into the university. She has written and published widely on the ways in which expressive art therapies can help to deal with the trauma of refugees, and has delivered keynotes and other conference papers on this and related topics. She has a book deal with Routledge entitled Providing Psychological Support for Adolescent Refugees, a Trauma-Informed Expressive Arts Toolkit, which will be out in late 2024, so keep your eyes peeled for that one. Then we will have um, Dr. Elisa Bulfin. Uh, Dr. Elisa Bulfin is a literary and cultural scholar whose research and teaching interests range for, across popular cultural... <coughs> pardon me. Popular culture from the 19th century to the contemporary period. Her work explores the dark side of the human imagination with a particular focus on representations of war, environmental catastrophes and child sexual abuse. She's currently the PI of the 2021 European Research Council Starting Grant Project, investigating fictional representations of child sexual abuse in contemporary culture, myths and understanding. Uh, CSA reps is the acronym for the project, I presume. Yeah. Her monograph, Gothic Invasions, Imperialism, War and the Fin de siècle Popular Fiction, was published in 2018. She is co-organiser of the Invasion Network International, sorry, of the Invasion Network International Research Group, and has co-produced a special issue of Critical, critical Survey considering the impact of the invasion fiction of William Lecoux, thank you. William Lequeux on early 20th century fears of war, invasion, spying and sabotage. And that was published in 2020. Great. So thank you, Dr. Bolfin. And finally, Professor Gillian Wiley, who is here. 
Professor Gillian Wiley studied politics and international relations at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. In 2001, she became a full-time lecturer on the MPhil in International Peace Studies. She, as well as teaching on the MPhil in International Peace Studies, she coordinates her school's postgraduate diploma on conflict and dispute resolution studies and supervises a large number of master's and doctoral students, particularly in the field of gender, conflict and peace. Her research specialism lies in human trafficking, the politics of international migration, globalisation and gender issues. She is an editorial board member of the Journal of Human Trafficking, which is published by Taylor and Francis, and she has served as her school's Director of Postgraduate Teaching and Learning and as the head of the discipline in the Irish School of Ecumenics in recent years. She is committed to civic engagement, particularly the issue of how universities respond to the refugees facing crisis in Europe. So uh, please welcome all our speakers for today. Um, Rachel, I'm going to give the floor to you first. Um, I believe you have uh, some slides that you want to show us and to present on your work. I do. Um, thank you so much. I've, and thank you so much for reorganising the room, for, just for me. I'm so sorry. I've managed to get COVID. I'm not sick at all, really. But um, I, I'm, I was actually raging. and I couldn't come in today. Um, I have been dipping in and out of sessions. And there's so much. I'm just really, really impressed with everybody's research. Um, I mean, there's so many themes. Uh, we could have a whole conference on the themes that then how they interlink with my work as a clinician researcher. Um, you know, themes of identity, epigenetics, uh, vicarious trauma, resilience, post-trauma. Just, it's just been an absolutely amazing day. And, and I mean, I'm just, I'm sure everybody is just blown away by the way this has been organised and by the quality of the presentation. So thank you so much. Um, so I know I've only got very limited time, and I just wanted to really give you a, a snapshot of what I do and what I'm doing at the moment. Um, so I'm an expressive art psychotherapist, and, and that is a specialised psychotherapy modality which is grounded really in sensory practice. So we use art, music, um, dance, movement, uh, dramatic um, enactment, creative writing, imaginative play, all as tools for communicating, transforming and healing um, traumatic experiences. Um, one of the things that happens when people um, experience trauma is that there's a part of their brain called the Broca's area which is um, responsible for speech and that closes down. So the, the kind of traditional um, talking therapies um, don't really help people who have experienced trauma. Okay, so just quickly I'm going to say a few words on trauma and the expressive arts. I want to talk to you a little bit about me being a clinician as researcher or as I sometimes call it, how to be a double agent. Um, and then I'm going to just give you some um, nice slides uh, which look at, which kind of display and illustrate some collaborative research which I carried out with Sparazi, which is the National Centre for the Rehabilitation of um, Survivors of Torture. Um, so I suppose that the one thing I, that I just wanted to kind of start off with this, because I work with unaccompanied minors, so that's um, that's young people coming into the country with no family, no support, apart from their friends, actually. Um, and I work with them, and, and, and some of the trauma that they've experienced is, is, is the worst kind that you could ever imagine. So I know I, I was here at the, 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 the Columbine talk, actually, today, and I was just thinking a lot of a lot of my young people I work with, because they have experienced um, 
witnessed um, people being killed, um, members of their own family. So it's the worst thing you can think of that, that has happened to these young people. Um, and what I found, you know, we, we all think about trauma reminders and cues as possibly being, you know, a helicopter overhead or a car backfiring and some, taking somebody back to, you know, a bomb going off in Afghanistan. But the other things that have come up with the young people I work with, I just wanted to share this with you. Um, the top right hand corner there, that's a smell, smell of tobacco. Um, so that smell is a very, very potent kind of sensory way of people um, being re-triggered by their trauma. Um, plane is the obvious one. Uniforms is another big one. You know, people arrive here, I had a young person arrive here on Christmas Eve in, in, in the back of the lorry full of Christmas trees. He didn't know what a Christmas tree was. Um, and the first person he saw had a uniform on and he'd been abused and tortured by somebody in a uniform back in his, um, in, in his home country. So that is a massive trigger. Um, but the, the, the one in the top left is perhaps you're probably thinking, what is a nice glowing lamp doing there? That was something that happened in the therapy room and I just wanted to share it with you. Um, that I had a young person came in one time and he just froze when he walked in. And I knew this young person had been coming to me for a while. And it turned out that what had triggered him was the yellow um, glow of that lamp um, because it took him straight back to Syria when he'd been running through a field of sunflowers um, and he'd been, been shot at at that point. So we can never predict what is going to remind somebody of their trauma, what a cue is going to be. Obviously, we can, you know, we can do a certain amount, but I suppose that I just wanted to make the point that... Um, you know, that sometimes things trigger people that we wouldn't think of in a million years would be a trigger. Um, and I know that some of you have mentioned this book today, which is very heartening. Um, this is the book that kind of set me on my journey, I think, The Body Keeps the Score. Um, and, and it's, I suppose it's, it's just a seminal text on um, the way in which we, uh, the body stores trauma. Um, and many people who have been forcibly displaced will have witnessed extreme violence and the memories will have left them feeling really overwhelmed and helpless in the body. And that's where they relive the trauma in their bodies and the unconscious parts of their minds. But I, I, I really don't have to tell you guys this because it seems that you, you know, that's why I haven't included um, a, a definition of trauma because um, you, you, you really do know what you're talking about. And I'm not a literary scholar and, 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 and have never been a literary scholar, um, but it's very, very interesting for me to see how important literature is um, when we're talking about this this topic. So that's been something I've really learned today and all the crossovers between clinical and practitioner work and um, what we find in, in literature. Um, okay, so my next um, slide is just, um, just to, I suppose, art therapy. And, and I just, the art therapy and expressive arts are two different things. So art is, is, is just art, expressive arts is really any way in which somebody wants to express themselves. But it really came into its own after 9-11 because what happened is that people all over the country started seeing in primary schools and in other settings that children were just um, spontaneously drawing what had happened, painting what had happened. Even if they hadn't witnessed it themselves, they saw a constant replaying, a bit like Columbine, on, 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 um, on, on the television. And what, what research, so researchers um, looked at all of these drawings and what they found is that when we had a drawing like this, where we have um, you know, a superhero stopping um, the plane. Um, and actually the previous one as well, um, unfortunately it's cut off a little bit at the bottom. There's a trampoline there. Um, so the people were able to, they, they jumped out of the windows, but they were able to um, go back up. And when, and what the research found was that 
when um, children had, had included somebody helping or somebody preventing, then their mental health outcomes were much more positive um, than a child who hadn't drawn that. So that was something really interesting that came out of our therapy. But it was just a time when um, all of a sudden um, the art therapy really came into its own. Um, so, you know, now we've got kind of 20 odd years of, of, of research uh, looking at art therapy as well. Um, this, I just wanted to share this with you and I've got the young man's permission to share it. I know those of you who've heard me speak before will have seen this before, uh, but I don't think it ever loses its power. So this was a young man who was coming to me for quite a while um, and he'd come from Eritrea and he's basically documented his journey here in, um, it was a piece for his leaving search. Um, and that's why it's got indentation on it. I think that, that was the theme of the piece that he had to produce. Um, part of the thing that was really shocking for me, um, as well as the content, was the fact that his teachers didn't comment at all on, on, on the actual content. They just, they just commented on the form and what, what was wrong with it, what was wrong with the art. And you know, he had laid his heart and, and everything that had happened to him out there for everybody to see. So he brought it into the therapy room. He needed to process this. And we spent about six weeks going through it and, and him um, ha me helping him to process. Um, so I suppose he started off in Eritrea and then Ethiopia, and you can see little images right beside the flags. Um, so this was um, this cross was um, a present given to him by his grandmother, and then he went into um, South Sudan, and you've got the the desert there. And we actually made that picture in the therapy room. I've got a sand tray, so we had, we had great fun making the footprints there. Um, and then you've got um, Libya, which was the most horrific place for, for this young person, and that's him in despair. Um, that is his friend who had been tortured and parts of his fingers removed. So he included those on the picture. Can you imagine his art teacher not even asking him about it or, or mentioning it? Um, and then on the other side, we got into Italy, we got into Europe, and there's Italy, and then Switzerland. And the, the kind of little marks here have got progressively lighter. There is actually an ambulance beside that um, Swiss flag, you can't quite see it. And then we've got France, and um, the young man won a trophy for a boxing competition in, in France. He was really, really, that he was in the jungle refugee camp there. And then we've got Ireland, which is all symbols of love and hope. Um, so that is, for me, that really does encapsulate um, the, 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 the power of art when it comes to being able to tell your story and process your story. This is something else which I use in the, in the therapy room and it's called sand tray therapy. Um, we call it hands-on psychological work. Um, and basically what we, we use, we ask, we, we give the young person, we have lots of miniatures and the use of miniatures can help, um, help people heal through the therapeutic process. So rather than talking about what's happened to them, and remember that speech part of their brain that allows them to talk about that isn't working properly and doesn't function properly for a long time afterwards. Um, so, so instead, they can, um, I suppose, compose a 3D picture in the sand tray. Um, people do a four years master's just on sand tray therapy. There's a huge amount to it, so it's hard to kind of, um, it's hard to sum it up, but it really does bring things from the unconscious out into conscious awareness. It's a very, very powerful tool. Um, and it's not my job as a therapist to um, interpret that, um, but it's more to notice things, to notice and to be curious about, about for example, where miniatures are placed, how far they are from each other, 
what colours are chosen, etc. So it's a very powerful um, form of um, therapy. So just in terms of then my research, um, you know, I've been working with this population for five or six years. I had a, an amazing, um, very kind of rich um, clinical notes. And I'd also taken pictures of a lot of the sand trays and other ways in which the young people um, used miniatures and symbols. Um, and I was looking for a way to use this in, um, you know, in, in, in research because you can imagine you might do one or two interviews with a young person, but I, I was seeing a young person maybe once a week for a whole year. Now, obviously, if I ask them to give permission to do research, that's going to destroy our therapeutic relationship. So that wasn't an option. Another option is to try and disguise um, the data. But the one I went for is, was, a, was a composite approach. So I um, brought together five or six um, people typically there and, and, and made it into one kind of person so that the person wasn't identified at all um, from the details. Um, and that's, you know, I was kind of keeping my fingers crossed going through ethics and then obviously writing the article and getting accepted by journals, but that worked well. And I think that just gives a, a much richer view of the daily lives, the daily struggles of, of the young people um, I was working with. Um, and I, I suppose that that material comprised of, um, um, of, of my clinical notes and also the photographs I'd taken over a five-year period. So it was, um, it was really rich data. And um, yeah, so I, that's why I said how to be a double agent, because I'm, I'm researcher and clinician, primarily clinician, but I also want to use what's happening in the therapy room, especially as I'm working with a very kind of, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a very specialized group, if you like, um, so that we can learn much more about what their daily lives and struggles are. So just the last few slides, I just want to tell you a little bit about um, a portrait project um, that I mentioned earlier briefly, um, that was conducted with Sparazi. So Sparazi, as I said, it's the um, National Center for the Rehabilitation of Survivors of Torture. Um, they have a befriending project, which is an amazing project with, which pairs an Irish person or somebody who's been living in Ireland with um, a newcomer, um, somebody who has experienced torture. And we did this portrait project. We had two artists in, um, one from Syria and one from Ireland. And they spent the whole day doing portraits of one another. This was all kind of loosely supervised. Um, we started off with um, doing a collage, because that's very unthreatening when perhaps you've been told you're, you're not good at art from a, from a young age, as I certainly was. Um, and then the artists helped them with templates. Um, and it was a really powerful day. We got lots of feedback afterwards. And you know, one of the things that really stuck with me is that one of the survivors of torture said it gave her a whole day where she didn't think of all her difficulties, her problems, where she got to know her befriender, she could see where they could connect. Um, and it really, because you know, if you think about it, they were staring at each other and, and you know, um, producing these portraits all day. And it was a really, it was a real coming together um, and kind of day of connections. Um, and you can see here that, that there's a definite artist there on the left. Um, who, who was obviously very good at art, but these were some of the finished um, um, products. So I just wanted to um, share those with you. Um, okay, and that's it. Just wanted to give you a flavour of, of what I do and um, how that obviously impacts on trauma and the expressive arts. Thank you. That's great. Thank you, Rachel. Um, before we um, begin the discussion proper, I'm going to um, now turn to uh, Dr. Bolfin and um, ask you to now um, respond to um, a question that was posed to you, so to give everyone else 
some context. The question posed was, how is your work interdisciplinary? How do you bring together your fieldwork and the literary representation of trauma and violence? Well, I might start just by introducing the, the work a little bit, if that's okay. Um, can you guys hear me? Yeah. yeah. And if you want the slides, we can... Just that one is grand, yeah. Um, so, um, like a lot of the talks that you've listened to today, and I'm really conscious that you've listened to an awful lot of difficult material today, and I'm really conscious that it is draining. Um, so my subject, my, my research subject, is um, the very sensitive topic of child sexual abuse. And I know I'm asking you to kind of sit with this um, difficult subject late in the evening when, when I know that you're tired. If anybody wants to leave the room at any time, that's fine. If anybody wants to rejoin at any time, that is also fine. Um, and there's some support information at the, uh, at the end of these slides. Um, so I work on fictional representations of child sexual abuse. Um, child sexual abuse is known to be one of the experiences that tends to result unfortunately frequently in complex trauma and um, so that that trauma then tends to become quite a prevalent theme in fictional representations of child sexual abuse and um, it's represented I suppose through a number of different narrative techniques some of them I'm probably going to touch on becoming a little bit cliched um, at this point in time some of them I suppose refreshingly new um, I should say that I work in a very collaborative way, so I collaborate um, first and foremost with survivors of child sexual abuse um, who act as sort of research collaborators and advisors for me on the project, um, also with academics across cultural studies, um, but also across all of the disciplines that research child sexual abuse directly, so that would be people in social work, medicine, law, those kinds of areas, um, and also with the support professionals who work with survivors in their kind of day-to-day -day work, so people like social workers, um, clinical psychologists, and it just helps to, I suppose, so they work right at the coalface, or they've experienced things right at the coalface, and I'm at a remove of looking at it through you know, the lens of fiction, so I'm a little bit kind of protected from it that way, as many of us who are literary and cultural researchers are today, so it, just, it really helps to have that perspective um, and to bring that to bear on the analysis and to kind of keep that, I suppose, at the centre, front and centre um, of my mind when, when I am working on it. Um, so my current project then is, um, as Vicky kindly read out, it's um, looking at cultural representations of child sexual abuse from the point of view of um, to what extent I suppose they do cultural work like perpetuating myths, but also perhaps to what extent they can help to create empathy for survivors and more accurate understanding of the experience of, of sexual abuse. Um, so it's, it's a two-stranded project, essentially. So there is a strand that looks at how child sexual abuse is represented in um, film, television, and novels, but mm, like focusing on works that reach wide audiences. Um, because it's based on the premise, really, and this will be sort of familiar to anybody who works in sort of cultural studies and popular culture studies, that widely circulating cultural works don't just reflect how a society feels about an issue that they can also um, potentially help to shape it. I don't think that's going to be a very hard sell for many of you here today because it's come up across a lot of the talks 
that these kinds of works can have powerful kinds of impacts. I'm looking at Nora as I'm speaking here, um, and I, I actually feel like I will be impacted by your account of Prima Fascia just from hearing about it like third hand, um, let alone actually witnessing it in, in theatre. Um, so yes, this is, this is the premise that um, I work from, and so that speaks to the other strand of the project, which is then going out and engaging with audiences to try to find out about how these works um, have affected them. So on the representative strand of the project, yeah, so as I said, I look across novels, film and television, but I focused on, to make it manageable, four key genres that I think um, where child sexual abuse is kind of a major theme. So it's like a minor theme in other genres like fantasy, but it really seems to be at the forefront of particularly crime fiction. Um, and then uh, young adult fiction, we've already spoken about Laurie Hals Anderson's Speak, and there's a whole genre of those kinds of novels. Um, and then gothic horror, where the, the monster figure is often used as a metaphor for the abuser. And then a very uncomfortable category that I've kind of created um, to lump together other kinds of more realist representation, things you might see in the general fiction of the bookshop or the kind of drama section of a streaming service. Um, or you might also think of as issues novels or that, speaking to the kind of the remit of this conference, kind of trauma fiction as well um, falls into this category. Um, in terms of how to analysis to analyze it, um, so I want to analyze the works in three main ways. First, looking at um, how child sexual abuse is represented thematically. In what ways are survivors represented or victims represented? Because in crime fiction, they, people tend to be depicted as victims rather than survivors. Um, to in what ways are perpetrators represented, in what ways are bystanders, that really important position of bystanders represented, people who see abuse happening and do or don't um, intervene to do something about it. Um, and then I also want to look at the formal strategies that these works use, and we talked an awful lot about how trauma um, impacts narrative form. I mean, that's been, a, I would say, a major theme of the day today. Um, but also across, um, I suppose, the perpetuation of myths and stereotypes. Um, yeah, there, there's there's a, there's a range of um, narrative strategies, I suppose, that can be analysed uh, formally. And then the third. The third way that I look at the works, and it's, it's kind of an extension of the formal analysis, but it's to look at the emotional hooks and cues in the narratives, or the cognitive hooks and cues in the narrative, because these works invite us to think and feel along with the say, main protagonists in the narrative. They invite us into what you might call a default subject position. Um, it was one of the talks now, I, I can't think of the one, um, somebody was talking about how they essentially invite us to merge with often sort of the protagonist who has experienced the abuse and from that potentially we can, we can gain just a little bit of insight into what the experience might be like. We can of course refuse to um, take up the default subject position and, and we, can, we can choose not to engage with the works in the way perhaps they're um, author or creator might have intended. Um, so that's the representational side of the project. And then the other side of the project is to conduct a series of interviews with survivors of sexual abuse 
um, if I can get ethical approval to do so, child survivors through the children's hospitals um, and adult survivors as well. With them, I'll just ask them to tell me if they have chosen to read and watch these representations, what that experience was like. With general audiences, I'll, and it'll be really difficult, but I, like, I'll pick works that I think are not too potentially traumatizing, and then I will ask them to, to read and watch them and then um, uh, look at questionnaires of their answers. Um, and try to just get a sense from that of the kind of, I suppose, wider social impact that the texts might have. Um, there's a body of work um, looking at audience response, I suppose, that I'm drawing on and I do have some ideas as to the kinds of responses I might find as well from talking to people who work in the area and survivors themselves who've talked to me about their experiences of reading and watching fiction. So on the one hand, there is that sense, and this came up in some of the talks as well, of well, I feel seen now. I feel that I'm not alone. I feel like other people have had this experience and that can be, um, was it Nyla was talking about that kind of therapeutic experience of reading fiction. Um, on the other hand, survivors have talked to me about their absolute abhorrence of that, uh, re that constant rehash of the cycles of abuse myth that you find in crime and gothic fiction, where the like, really simplistic, backstory shorthand is that, oh, well, the perpetrator is this horrible because they were abused as a child. So they talked to me about their distre the, 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 the distress this can cause, and also the distress caused by the myth that abuse is indelible, that you, like recovery isn't possible. And um, so those are the kinds of things that maybe might come up in the research, um, but who knows. And um, for general audiences, then, there's the idea that maybe maybe it's that, that classic thing of walking a mile in somebody's shoes, seeing through somebody's eyes, from some kinds of work, but on the other hand, maybe if the, the works are not accurate representations, that they might in fact rehash stereotypes and rehash the myths and you know um, amplify um, unhelpful news media frames of, of abuse. Um, I think that's all I wanted to say to you by way of introducing the project, but I'll, yeah, I'll touch on more of this over the course of the discussion. Great, thank you very much, Dr. Belfin. And uh, finally, uh, let me get my quest, sorry, have to swap between different things here, beg my pardon. Uh, Professor Gillian Wiley, do you want to stay here? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> on which premises are specific pieces of news discarded or chosen for dissemination and how are they translated into research conclusions? Why, for example, are certain stories considered more important than others? Very good. Um, okay, well, thank you all very much. And... Uh, um, yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, I um, when I was talking with um, Ellen and Jenerva about today, we talked about um, the way that in my discipline of peace studies, um, we um, there are some scholars who draw our attention to the ways that how we are how the world is presented to us, uh, particularly say, in news media or in uh, cultural, other cultural productions, uh, spectacularises violence. Um, that, you know, when you turn on the news, this is what you're going to encounter, um, a spectacularisation of violence. And there's a whole kind of sub-genre in peace studies that uh, is concerned with the idea of peace journalism, uh, which is a practice which is not out to deny the lack of peace in our world, 
but to complicate our stories about the world, to pay attention to other things happening, uh, but also to always pick up on stories of um, the complexity, the causes of violence, but also those acting to counter violence. Um, so I think um, that's a general point about an aspect of what goes on in peace studies, debates about the representation of violence. Um, and I could segue to how that connects to my own research, if that's okay, sure. Biggie. Uh, so, um, Elisa was just talking about cultural representations of violence, um, and my own research has been around human trafficking, as mentioned. Um, I'm particularly interested in the politics surrounding trafficking and the policy frameworks which have been implemented uh, around them. Um, human trafficking, at its boldest, could very obviously be seen as a traumatic experience in the terms of somebody being deceived, coerced, moved, exploited uh, in the trafficking process. But how our understandings of trafficking have been constructed, um, I think often are done in ways that emphasise this spectacularisation of violence. Um, and the impact of that is to hide uh, other forms of violence that we need to pay attention to that are driving exploitable people becoming exploitable. So in peace studies we talk about uh, direct and structural violence, direct violence being harm to the physical body, structural violence being the um, systems of harm, of inequality, of injustice that are the drivers of conflict. Um, and the third aspect we sometimes pay attention to is cultural violence. How do cultural representations of phenomena uh, both mask and legitimate direct and structural violence? Um, so in relation to human trafficking, policy discussions about trafficking in the last 20 years or so have been very dominated by an emphasis on sex trafficking as opposed to other forms of exploitation, even though they are listed in the definition of trafficking by the United Nations. Um, and policy discourses in the United States and Europe have very much been around um, the countering trafficking through uh, the, the criminalisation of the buying of sex. We have that law in Ireland now. Um, and, um, People who are critical, including myself, and critical of this uh, kind of presentation of trafficking and uh, dealing with it through criminalising the purchase of sex, uh, are drawing attention to the way that cultural representations of trafficking focus on what my friend and colleague in Australia, Erin um, O'Brien, has talked about, the, the trafficking narrative. Uh, the innocent female victim, the shady foreign male trafficker, the white saviour, very often an NGO or um, uh, an activist in the global north. Um, arguably these representations of trafficking are very powerful in that they present trafficking as violence against women uh, and they present it as something done by foreign men and 
they are used uh, in film, in, uh, in novels, in, uh, in, in podcasts, all over the place to um, justify the kind of policy responses of Western governments. Um, and so it's arguable that the cultural representations that dominate our minds uh, when we think of human trafficking uh, are denying the voice and agency of women and men who are moving in the globalised economy for whatever reason. Uh, they're orientalist in their depiction of the unequal relations of um, the, the, the exploited uh, innocent other from abroad and the white saviour. Um, and in terms of structural violence, I think they're deflecting our attention from the causes of trafficking, which lie in migration systems, uh, lack of uh, access to legal employment, lack of access to the right to move uh, in a very unequal, globalised system of hierarchy of movement, um, capitalism, um, other forms of exploitation around labour, um, and uh, the voice and agency of those who are on the move. So uh, I have, I'm not a cultural studies scholar, but I, I did uh, write a, a piece last year that's in a, uh, a, 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 an edited volume about representations of gender-based violence, and that's the argument I develop in that paper that um, how these uh, phenomena are represented are in themselves harmful and violent because of the policy uh, responses that are legitimated by them. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> and well within time as well, so thanks for that. Um, so again, um, our speakers have been um, given some questions in advance for them to respond to, so I'm going to ask those questions and then um, individually and then ask each of the um, speakers to respond in turn. Um, so the first question that all of our speakers were asked to respond to was actually a question that came up, um, I heard this, a form of this question come up in the, um, uh, during one of the panels earlier on today. Um, when it comes to trauma, how ethical and accurate can um, its depiction be when told by someone else, so by a third party? Um, and how do you tackle this within your own field? So, Rachel, I think um, we'll hear from you first for your response to that. Thank you. I suppose in my field, um, I might be telling the story, but not from a spoken story. Um, so I'm interpreting that story. It's always an interpretation. Um, but I feel that, I, I suppose what I can do is I can get to know that story over a period of time, which a lot of people don't have that, the benefit of doing that. Um, so I'm not sure how accurate it can be. Um, I think I work in a very ethical way. Um, but, you know, I suppose because trauma is, you know, stored and then it, it leaves its traces on the body, it's very hard to put that into words. So I think we need to, we need to look at other ways of, of, of recording those stories as well. And that's where I think expressive arts come in. Um, I'm not sure if I'm answering it properly, but <laughs> that's my thoughts on it. No, that's great. Thank you, Rachel. Um, Elisa? I suppose on the one hand this might seem like more of a question for um, those, those journalistic um, uh, pieces that you were talking about, like the ethics of covering, oh, sorry, 
the ethics of covering somebody else's suffering, but this did come up today. There, there were quite a lot of discussions about the ethics of fictional representation, actually, in the paper about Roddy Doyle. We were talking about that, Roddy Doyle's smile. Like, to what extent does somebody have to have experienced something in order to be considered to legitimately um, write about it? Um, should authors, directors, creative practitioners, should they have to disclose their position in relation to the subject? Um, I, I don't really, I mean, I don't think so, and I suppose um, I try to, to tell you how I approach that instead. But one thing that I did notice very recently in a young adult novel um, published last year, it's uh, Wise Creatures by Deirdre Sullivan, that covers a range of kind of topics like child sexual abuse and a whole bunch of other things that young adults might be kind of struggling with and at the end in the acknowledgements she has a, a piece acknowledging that it has been reviewed by sensitivity and expert reviewers so I thought that was quite an interesting way to, to come at that kind of ethical issue of representing perhaps somebody else's experience. The way that I try to approach it in my work is to look at the representations and to ask to what extent are they trying to be true to survivors' experiences? And on the other hand, to what extent maybe are they using them as plot devices? Um, so building on that, I kind of see a spectrum, but it's more complicated than a spectrum of representations ranging from those that are, you might consider to be sensitive, nuanced, and what I think of as survivor-centered, um, to, on the other hand of that spectrum, those that are sensationalistic um, and those that rehash myths and stereotypes. Um, the, worst kind of, the worst kind of instance of this kind of representation for me would be it's crime fiction where the, and I'm going to say victim here because it's not, the person is not a survivor, they're a victim, the victim is used as a plot device. Mm -hmm. To show you how the world of the central character, the focalizing character, the detective, the important character, to show what a terrible world they have to move through because they have to encounter people like this in their day-to-day -day life. So that would be very much not survivor-centered as I would see it. Um, to give a couple of examples though about how really tricky this kind of ethical stuff is, um, I want to maybe think about the example of The Lovely Bones which is written by Alice Siebold. I'm not going to get into the controversy whereby um, so The Lovely Bones is written out of Siebold's personal experience of being raped by a stranger when she was 18. She ended up in, inadvertently um, helping to have the wrong person convicted, but that's not what I'm going to talk about here. So she writes The Lovely Bones out of this experience, but it tells the story of um, Susie Salmon, who's a 14-year-old who is raped and then murdered, and the narration is told from Susie's perspective in heaven. So on the one hand, the, the rape and murder scenes are unflinchingly realistic. On the other hand, the, the retrospective like narration from heaven, um, and the heaven is really saccharine, especially in the movie, I don't know if any of you have had the misfortune to see that. Um, and, and even involving things like Susie can travel back to earth and take over the body of a friend to have a kind of a typical coming of age moment that she missed out on due to her untimely death. So it's a really provocative novel. Um, it sold millions of copies worldwide. It has provoked 40,000 reviews on Goodreads, um, very many of which absolutely love it. They find it. People find it really meaningful. It really speaks to them in a number of ways. One girl even using the phrase that really stood out for me, there were details about Susie that were also about me. Um, but on the other hand, it has 
a, a lot of people like really, really violently dislike it. So there you have Siebold, who's writing from the perspective of a survivor, but who's still kind of missing the mark with a very key segment of her readership. Um, another thing that's really interesting and ties in with Gillian's discussion of trafficking is the BBC uh, drama, kind of docudrama, Three Girls, which I'm not sure if you're um, familiar with. Yeah. So it's the story of um, focusing on three of the girls who were exploited in a child sexual exploitation network in Rochdale in Britain. There were actually thousands of girls exploited, but it's kind of distilled down to the experiences of three of them and, and they are real world girls and they did um, cooperate with the makers of the, the, docu the, the drama um, and so did also some of the um, adult, uh, the, the, the prosecutor and the social workers who were involved. So it's something that's really grounded in the victims and survivors' experiences um, and it again had really quite a profound impact in that it was viewed by millions of people over three nights and it provoked something like 127,000 phone calls to the helpline afterwards. It and another programme about rape that was airing at about the same time. They reckoned those two prompted that. I also, um, in my collaborative work, found that it was being used by a detective sergeant in the Irish Guards. This is where it kind of speaks to the experience of trafficking to show colleagues exactly what trafficking consists of because people are not very well aware of what it consists of so that just putting a child into a taxi for the purposes of exploitation counts as trafficking and is prosecutable but she said it had the unintended effect of making them empathize more with the girls the reason it took so long for those girls stories to their experiences to be brought to justice was because they were not good victims. They were considered to be unreliable. And so her Garda colleagues said that they could kind of get into, they, they could empathize so much more with the girls that they might encounter coming from disadvantaged backgrounds, not being perfect um, victims. And they could understand why they might present with difficult behaviors in their encounters with them. So yeah, I, I guess, yeah. That'll do for the ethics of representation. <laughs> Thanks. I'm, I'm sure we could talk about yeah. this for hours, but we, mm. yeah. Um, Gillian, your response. Oh, on representing. Remind me of the question. The question, <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, so, when it comes to trauma, how ethical and accurate can its depiction be when told by yeah. someone else? How do you tackle this issue in your field? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I kind of lo I lost track of the actual <laughs> question because I was so interested in uh, the answer that at least I was giving and kind of moving to a different answer than the one I've notes for. Um, <laughs> but um, I think that's so interesting. And of course, with trafficking, the just as you said, their issue of childhood and adulthood is quite important here. Um, when I was talking about the, the representation of um, the perfect victim of the, the sex trafficked victim, um, usually represented as adults or, or young women. So uh, whereas uh, you, you mentioned child trafficking there and, you know, it's quite clear in international law around trafficking that uh, children cannot consent. Issues of consent and coercion become more complicated when we're talking about adults. So I think that's where we need these more complicated narratives and stories about um, people who are kind of put into the ideal victim category in sex trafficking stories. Uh, but with that important proviso about um, age is important, I think. But you probably know more about age issues than, than I do with your emphasis on childhood. Um, 
So I think generally though, in, in peace studies, um, obviously we have to acknowledge and, and recognize trauma because it's something that's become more, um, there's more discussion now in peace studies. We've always said we're interdisciplinary as peace studies scholars, but most of us I think come from kind of politics and IR type backgrounds and we're not so good on the clinical type work that Rachel does or psychological or therapeutic approaches to peace building. Uh, but it's emerging, it's definitely emerging in the, um, in the literature. Um, and how do you, how do we represent that in such a way that is, um, is done sensitively, uh, acknowledging we are not, many of us who are researchers are not experiencing that trauma ourselves is, is really important. And I just wanted to talk a bit about my PhD student Nandini, who's not here. Uh, she was here earlier, she works in the hub. Um, and during her research, which was in Kashmir, um, working with a, a non-governmental organisation called the Association for the uh, Parents of Disappeared People. Um, she developed uh, what she then described in her recently completed and passed thesis um, as a mindfulness-based approach. So what she found was that talking with women and men in uh, Kashmir who had lost family members uh, who'd never been found, but they'd been disappeared by the, the authorities uh, for decades, um, that it became important not to, um, not to be judging, not to be, and also to kind of abandon some of the norms of Western interviewing. Um, and I was just uh, looking again at her thesis before coming here, and she talked about how in one case, uh, a woman was very upset during the interview, um, talking about her husband who had been disappeared. And Nandini followed our research ethics protocols and said we have to stop the interview or we should stop the interview. And the woman said to her, if you don't have the strength to be with my tears, how will you do justice to my story? And that just, well, it gave me shivers up my spine. So, you know, how to, uh, and so she developed this way of just being with the people um, and then trying to be staying with their stories um, and reproducing them uh, in the thesis. So um, she talks about the importance of mindful listening uh, in, in doing this kind of research. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you um, to all of our speakers for that. Um, in the interests of time, um, I'm going to smush the next two questions together, mostly because I think a lot of the responses that we've had uh, to that first question actually tied into the um, second question as well. Um, so uh, the two questions together then, uh, what are the methods, difficulties and limitations of representing and memorialising violence and its traumas? Um, how can we incorporate these topics effectively and ethically into our work? Again, I think a lot of that has been covered in the previous answers. And then um, how do the individual and collective dimensions of trauma intersect? And Elisa, if I can start with you. Oh. <laughs> I don't know, I'd wanted to talk um, for that, that second, because yeah, I did kind of cover um, what I think about um, survivor-centered representations, but I'd, I'd wanted to offer for, for the first part of this question, maybe just um, 
a way of looking at trauma fiction a little bit differently, although I know actually this seems to be something that people are doing now, to look at it more in terms, or also in terms of its possibilities for representations of um, recovery, of coping strategies, uh, things like this. Uh, this approach was suggested to me by a clinician who works with child survivors in the um, St. Clair's pediatric uh, CSA unit in what, what was Crumlin Hospital, and um, they're now in Tala Hospital. I had been, I'd been giving them a talk and I'd been talking about a series of unfortunate events, which is a children's book series, and I'd been kind of reading the first one of these as rehashing the myths, so some of the kind of the myths of child sexual abuse in its um, depiction of a marriage between a 14-year-old and an, an evil count. But she pointed out to me that the Baudelaire children are very resilient, and she felt that child readers could get something out of the stories um, through looking at the ways that the Baudelaire's model resilient behaviour and support each other as they go through their unending series of um, really unfortunate events. I think that kind of message is probably lost by the time you get to book 14, but certainly in the first few books that potential is there. So I wanted to think about particularly the, the phenomenon of self-compassion and maybe looking at um, trauma fiction for well, does it, like does this ever come up in, in trauma fiction? And that's kind of treating yourself as the person who's experienced trauma with the same kind of kindness that you would extend to somebody else. Because recent studies have showed that increased levels of self-compassion correlate, they don't know yet if, if it's causative, but correlate with lower levels of PTSD symptoms. Um, and this involves things like being better able to integrate traumatic memories. Um, like having kind of more realistic uh, understandings of um, one's own experience, not catastrophizing, being able to emotionally regulate better, experiencing less levels of shame. So I was thinking maybe particularly with young adult fiction, which I find is absolutely shot through with massively traumatized um, narrators. They're narrating in first person, it's often in present tense, and they just seem to be locked in these kind of inescapable cycles of trauma, which like what kind of cultural work is that doing um, for a start? And um, not that I'm suggesting narratives have to have redemptive arcs because life is not necessarily like that, but would it help to sort of, would some kind of recuperative reading be possible if we looked for things like self-compassion in these narratives? Um, as to the, the connections between individual and collective trauma, I was thinking about things like, and this really came up, I don't probably actually really need to go into this too much because this came up a lot today, that idea that the experience of sexual violence is very individual and people often experience it individually and alone, but of course we need to look at the collective structures, you were talking mm -hmm. about structural violence, though, and, and other people were talking about rape culture, the criminal justice system, all of these things, cultures of Somebody else was talking about cultures of misogyny. Oh, the, the really good paper on um, domestic violence and its reportage during the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, so, where, where was I going with that? Yeah, the culture of misogyny underlying these, these um, individual acts of um, violence, but we need to look at this cultural, this wider cultural um, framework and news media reportage is, I think, um, can be and, ha and has shown to be in its framing to perpetuate this. This and I think fiction, and um, some forms of fictional work can can also engage in that and kind of amplify it as well. The second point I wanted to make with regard to that is to do um, then with the very personal experience of shame that 
um, the experience of sexual violence can bring that can also seem just, you know shame is an interpersonal emotion and it's something that perpetrators try to put on their victims to to silence them but it's also something that um, victims survivors can take on themselves in, in the form of self-blame um, but again these acts need to be seen in that wider collective um, those wider collective structures that silence victims so not that sexual violence is unspeakable but that people do not want to listen to stories of it that we need to be more open and, and listening better because nobody's experience should be not able to be talked about Thank you. Um, Gillian, I'm going to turn to you now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so actually, just to, to pick up on Elisa there, just, I had written one other thing from uh, Nandini's thesis from the same passage in the thesis where she's looking at this idea of the importance of uh, being mindful in your, when you encounter people who are in trauma. And uh, she says, this interviewer, you said to her, listen and believe my life is a legitimate story. So that whole importance of listening compassionately uh, is so important. Um, I think um, the idea of how do we memorialise violence is so complicated. Um, I mean even in our own island um, we're dealing with how to remember um, the troubles um, and it's a very fraught uh, politically at the moment with the, the government, the British government um, and its bill to prevent further um, court cases, um, a lack of one of the things that keeps collapsing the Stormont executive is uh, a failure to deal with the past. Um, and so, you know, there's very it's a very fraught space. How do we uh, memorialise that past and um, you know how people understand who is a victim and who is uh, a perpetrator and so on? Are highly politicised. So. Um, I am aware of the work, though, of uh, one organisation in Northern Ireland, uh, WAVE, uh, Trauma Centre. I don't know if anyone knows of their work, but um, they are a, a long-standing civic organisation that has provided just an inclusive space for everyone who considers themselves to have been victims uh, of the Troubles. Um, and they are trying to deal with you know, they, they do a lot of therapeutic work, uh, but they also do a lot of engaged educational work uh, at um, university level, um, and also they do um, advocacy work. Um, and then on the 21st of June, the longest day of each year, they have a day of reflection, which um, is just, well, as offering spaces for quiet reflection on the past and whatever trauma it means to people. Um, so not um, not building statues or um, you know public works or whatever, but just giving space. And uh, that might be uh, a creative way to to memorialise the past and do justice to the sorrows that it brings. Thank you, Gillian. And uh, Rachel, your response to the question, do you, do you want me to ask you it again to refresh your memory? Um, no, I've got it in front of me actually. Right. No, I just wanted to come back to what Gillian said actually in her previous response about the importance of being with and staying with. Um, and I think this is, this is really interesting in, in, in respect to my work. Um, and I just want to tell you a few little stories which kind of will illustrate the, the importance of this. Um, I, I had a young 
guy come to me once and he, at the time I was working in this very dilapidated old hospital, um, which was great because we could be as messy as we could and we were, you know, kind of building relationships through football and cricket in the room. And but he sat there for the whole 50 minutes just peeling wallpaper off the wall. And I was relatively inexperienced at the time and I thought, gosh, there's only so many times I can reflect back to him. And he got up at the end, he said, thank you, Rachel, and off he went. And of course, I was straight back onto the phone to my clinical supervisor and she said, Rachel, where else could he have done that? You just were with him, you stayed with him, you didn't question him. Um, he just needed to do that. You'll never know why. Um, so I think that, that the importance of that cannot be underestimated. And the other thing that that brought up for me was the, um, the crying um, piece as well. People crying. We, we're not comfortable with it. Um, you know, what do we do? We reach for the tissues straight away, um, which gives the message to somebody, stop crying, we can't handle this. We, you know, we don't want you to do this. So instead, we should really just, you know, what I do with the young people I work with, because many of them are from a cultural background where they would have been physically punished for crying at any point. Some of them told me they've never, ever cried. So they find it very difficult to cry. So that, um, that kind of opens up um, the possibility of um, me talking to them about um, how, how important it is to cry, how important it is to release cortisol, that it's good if you're crying with somebody. So that's, I think those things are, are really important in my work. And I, I love the fact that Nandini, um, you know, that, that was recognised in her work because we're so good now. I mean, we're, you know, we all have to go through these terrible ethics procedures, but I think, you know, sometimes the, the, the hum, human and the human, humanity is lost in that. And, and her response was, of the moment um, and you know responding to what that woman said which I thought was really interesting so it's really important that we be culturally sensitive um, I always you know I'm always going to come back to expressing ourselves to expressing ourselves in different ways to having different pathways to expression and that isn't something that is um, prescribed you know we all do things differently we all you know we, we, we might all of us gravitate towards different ways of expressing ourselves I've worked with a number of young people and um, purely through the metaphor of football, of the team, of the supporters, of the attackers, the defenders. Um, and that's, and you, you know, then moving on to look at the kind of leagues and positions in the leagues and goals in their lives, etc. And um, so it, that, that whole expressive arts, it's not just, we, you know, what we think of in terms of, you know, a pack of crayons or um, a paint, um, but it's any way, any different way in which we can express ourselves. So that's, you know, that's what I always come back to about, you know, these, the methods uh, and, and the difficulties. I think sometimes we have to just broaden out and go, okay, speech is one thing, but there are other ways of doing this. And sometimes the young people I, with, I work with come up with this themselves. So I've, I've, I'm working with a young woman at the moment who lost her father just before Christmas, and she's here, he's in Somalia. Um, and it turned out she was, when she was missing him at night, she, she would write to him every night into her phone, into a journal and tell him what she'd done all day um, and she and, and had pictures of him. And, and that ended up with us um, having a cushion with a pocket on the front where she could put a letter into, a, into that pocket every day um, and, and just hug the cushion. And it was in the colours that her father, um, you know, that, that she really did um, use to represent her father. So... You know, those kind of ways of expressing um, are, are really important. The other example I just wanted to give you was somebody else who came in to me and I had lots of miniatures of all kinds of different things and I really had to up my game with these young people by getting, you know, miniatures of not just, you know, the kind of houses that we would think of as houses but of other dwellings. But he went straight to the scorpion and he said, have, you know, his English was, was, was pretty limited, but I have scorpion in my country 
um, but it's not as dangerous as, 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 as the Taliban. And that led into him going to the sand tray and, and, and you know, expressing himself through those miniatures. So I think we just have to be very open and we can incorporate this into research as well. Um, that whole memorialising piece is very interesting. Um, and as I, that young woman I just mentioned with the cushion, she, something in her knew what she needed to do. She needed to keep that connection with her dad and that was the way. So she was doing exactly the right thing and it just needed me to witness that and to help her um, to process and, and to remember her dad and to share those memories with somebody who was going to listen, you know, and not interrupt her saying, well, my dad does this and my dad does that. So, you know, I think sometimes, you know, the, the, the solution comes from the, from the young person. Um, just in terms of um, individual and collective um, dimensions of trauma, um, one, one lovely piece that I did, um, I've done a number of times, is we do this, you may be familiar with this, Gillian, um, you might be familiar with it in the context of peace studies, but it's, it's the tree of life. And the tree of life, I would do that, um, so, so, you know, the young person will draw a tree and each part of that tree represents different things. So the roots are obviously where they've come from. Um, and, and this leads to different ways of expression and conversations. Um, I worked with a young person who I'd worked with for probably three months and I didn't realise that her grandmother had actually raised her. And this only came out through when we were, were making these trees out of collage. But then what we did um, in, 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 a, in a group um, setting was to bring all of the trees together um, and to make it a forest of life. Um, and you know, the, the part of it has, there are, there are branches, there are fruits that are born, there are also challenges. And then everybody was able to, to share their tree of life. And it wasn't just sitting around a table saying, oh, what's happened to you in your life? You know, they actually had um, something which they could then talk to everybody else about. So I know I'm coming at this, I'm coming at this in a very, very different way. Um, but those are just the things that kind of uh, come to mind, um, listening to everybody else and just in relation to my own work. And I try and bring those creative things into my research as well. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Um, and uh, talking about the idea of um, no more um, statues, but spaces for memorialising, it brought me to mind of the, um, the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin, which is this very, for anybody that's familiar with this, it's a, it's a very large space filled with varying different sizes of monoliths. Um, uh, and it's, it is a space where you can, everyone takes something, I think, from that and brings something to that space as well. And I think that's a very good example of a space to reflect mm. as well as being a memorial in, 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 it, in itself. Just a thought. Anyway, um, I'm, I'm, I'm very conscious of the time, so I will crack on. Um, so the last question that I have here in the list that uh, everyone has been asked to respond to is, um, how do we protect both the subjects of our inquiry or research and, particularly important from my perspective, how do we protect ourselves from the same thing? Um, who did I start with last time? I think I started with you, so I'm going to start with Gillian this time. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, well, I think um, in a way, in my own research around the, the trafficking issues, um, maybe I've protected myself by researching up rather than anything else. So by becoming more drawn to questions of politics and policy and uh, you know, I, I kind of um, maybe I avoid the the directness of engaging with traumatized people um, 
but um, I do think it needs a political analysis, so that's, uh, that's fine. Um, as I was saying to Bernice earlier, how do I protect myself? I indulge in a lot of light-hearted silliness. Um, I, um, I, I tend to just try and enjoy life and grab the good things. Thanks, Gillian. I think that's very important. Um, I'm still trying to work out the others. We'll go, uh, yes, we'll go with Elisa. <laughs> but lots, lots of things, I suppose, but there's a whole set of procedures for conducting um, research with what are referred to as vulnerable research participants and ethics procedures mm. Rachel was talking about. And there's really good reasons why they're there. And I'm not going to go into them because it's easy to find out what they are. But just quickly, because I know I'm conscious of time, it's also important not to infantilize the people that you are researching and, and not to overprotect because that leads to really stifling of people's voices. Like a lot of people won't work with child survivors of sexual abuse because it's so very hard to get ethical, ethical permission to do so. So that means actually their voices don't tend to get heard in research. So I think that's just something to be really careful of. Um, and then in, in terms of care of the researcher, uh, my own strategy really is um, to just to read the text in kind of bite-sized pieces. I, I don't mean like a, te a single text, but like to not constantly read works in, in, in this theme, like to intersperse it with, with light-hearted things, light-hearted reading or reading on, on other themes. Um, and advice that was given to me by Emily Pine, which I'm going to implement in my own project, is to have project meetings that aren't about the project, but are more like this space for reflection where we just actually talk about what it's like to work on this material. Thank you very much. And Rachel, your response. Thank you. I'm a bit like Gillian, lots of silliness in my life. Um, but also I'm very lucky in that I have um, clinical, regular clinical supervision um, with an amazing supervisor who I can you know, run by any difficulties with. So that's really important. I'm also part of a, um, of a community of practice as well. So, so we would often um, talk through cases with each other as well, because obviously I'm, I'm, I'm right at the pole face. Um, so it's really important and you know I do a lot of work with the young people I work with around self-care so I really have to practice what I preach <laughs> and getting out into nature it's a real cliche but um, you know really really important as well. Thank you very much. Um, before I finish up for today I, um, I, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not going to let anyone in the room ask a question because you'll all have the opportunity to speak to at least two of our speakers um, perhaps mm. over dinner or at least in the next few minutes as we all leave the room. Okay, with that in mind then, I don't want to keep anybody from their dinner, but before, um, before we thank our speakers, I'd like you also to thank the organisers of this conference as well, who've done a fantastic job. Um, I know they're not going to get a thanks otherwise. Well, they are. They're, everyone's going to thank them anyway, but thank you very much. <laughs>